you so much for your word. Lord, we've fallen in love with this Bible. Lord, it speaks straight to our hearts, and it conveys to us more than just opinions from men, but we hear in it the words of God. Lord, it is your very word, and we're thankful for it. And oh, how we need it, Lord. Lord, we need to walk in your ways, and we need to know your truths. Lord, so many people are floundering because of lack of knowledge. So, Lord, I pray that you would enable us to study this morning with clear minds and with uh, acute attention. And, Lord, I pray that even as we talk about maybe some difficult things to understand this morning, that you would bring some clarity and some simplicity to them and give us some handles where we can grab hold of them and apply these truths to our lives. Thank you for your word, Lord, and we look forward this morning to how it's going to impact us. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Dr. Dudley Johnson was a skilled cardiologist, but he was a man of few words. Once on the eve of an open-heart surgery, the patient asked Dr. Johnson, can you fix my heart? Johnson replied, sure, and then walked out of the room. Well, the next day, after a 12-hour surgery, the patient asked him again, in light of the blocked arteries you bypassed, how much more blood will I have now? Dr. Johnson gave him a terse reply. He said, all you'll ever need. Well, when the patient was discharged, his wife asked Dr. Johnson again, how will this surgery affect my husband's future quality of life? And Dr. Johnson's answer is what I want you to remember. He said, ma'am, I fixed your husband's heart. His quality of life is up to him. And this sums up Romans chapter 6. On the cross, Jesus fixed our rebellious hearts. In Christ, we are new inside. But now our quality of life depends on three choices. First, we need to know that at the cross, we connected to Christ. We became dead to sin and alive to God. We need to reckon this miracle is true and begin to see ourselves in light of it. And then we need to present our members to righteousness so that we begin to think and behave in ways that reinforce this new spiritual identity that we've been given. On the cross of Jesus, our old man was crucified with him. Thus, our rebellious heart has now been replaced with a compliant heart, one that loves God and loves others. We've been transformed by God's Spirit in the inner man. Now the goal for us is to get the rest of us in tow. Romans chapter 6 teaches us that Christians are free from sin, while Romans chapter 7 teaches us that we're also free from the law. And the two go together. In Christ we die to sin and we have died to the law. And both realizations are vital to victory. You know, a believer in Jesus is fixated on God's love and his pardon and his power until the law gets interjected into his thinking. Now his attention invariably shifts. Here's an example. Let's say I impose a law. Vanilla ice cream is prohibited to all. And yet the more I think of keeping that law, guess what? The more I want some delicious vanilla ice cream. The more I resist, the stronger the temptation grows. 
You see, the best way to resist vanilla ice cream is to cultivate a desire for chocolate ice cream. (laughs) To replace it with something better. And this is how you live victorious over sin. Under the law, I'm solely focused on resisting sin. The issue I dwell on is the sin in my life. But under grace, the issue becomes the son in my life. My focus is on Jesus. And it's his joy that lessens sin's appeal and neutralizes its temptation. To live in victory, preoccupy yourself with following the son, not just fighting the sin. Well, let's pick up where we left off last week in chapter 7, verse 14. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am carnal, sold under sin. And here, Paul introduces a new term to the discussion He calls himself carnal. Now, when you hear carnal, think chili. That's right, think chili. And there are two types of chili. There's the plain chili, but then there's the chili con carne. Chili with meat. That's the good stuff, by the way. Carne or carnal is Latin for meat or flesh. Now, recall what we learned in chapter 6. We all consist of two parts. There is the inner man. This is the part of you that will live forever, the spiritual part. Then there's the outer man. This is the part that dies and returns to dust. Flesh is a synonym for the outer man. So carnal is someone who leans on their own flesh, their own resources, rather than allow themselves to be influenced by God's Spirit. They would rather do it yourself than walk by faith. Now, remember also in chapter 6, verse 6, Paul uses two more terms. He mentions the old man. That's the old sin nature that we inherited from Adam. The inborn rebellion that fueled our selfishness and pride before we came to Christ. But the rebellion on the inside also shaped who I was on the outside. For evil thoughts and habits govern what I did and said. Paul refers to the outer man as the body of sin or the flesh. So when I came to Christ, the old man was crucified. I'm dead to sin. The sin nature has been eradicated. But this flesh, this body of sin, as Paul calls it, that conditioned me to... uh, do the evil things that I once did, it remains. Thus, the old man is dead, but our flesh keeps his tendencies alive. As we said, old habits die hard. And when I fall into those habits, Paul says, I'm being carnal. Now, apparently, this was Paul's problem. Verse 15, for what I am doing, I do not understand. For what I will to do, that I do not practice. But what I hate that I do. Paul tells us his actions contradicted his real desires. He wanted to obey God, but he lacked the follow-through. You know, it's unfortunate here that some commentators think Paul was speaking of himself as an unbeliever. I don't think so. Paul has godly desires here. He says he wants to do good. He wouldn't say that unless he was a Christian. It's obvious to me that Paul is a bona fide believer. But he is also a bewildered believer. He has godly ambitions, but he lacks the willpower to carry them out. And we've all been there, haven't we? 
What I want to do, I don't do. I say no, then there I go. We've all been there. Paul elaborates in verse 16. If then I do what I will not to do, I agree with the law that it is good. In other words, the law was right in condemning our actions. But now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. And this is such an astonishing statement. I marvel at it every time I read it. How can Paul sin then dare to say it is no longer I who do it? How can he do that? Unless a real transformation had actually occurred in his spirit to change his true nature. You see, Paul understood that every believer experiences a fundamental change inside when they come to Christ. In the inner man, in his true self, Paul was clean and sinless because of the work Christ had done. You remember that old bumper sticker, Christians aren't perfect, just forgiven? You know, I get the sentiment of that. You know, we're human, and as humans, we're still capable of sinning. But you know, that's, a, that's untrue. That's wrong biblically, theologically. For spiritually speaking, we are perfect. In the deepest part of who I am, I have become a new creation in Christ. See, the real you isn't the problem. Paul says, it's no longer I who sin, but it's sin that dwells in me. So what's the culprit? It's the body of sin. It's this flesh that we still lug around. It's the outer man, the thoughts and the habits that I carried over from my past life and that I allow the world to teach me now. See, I have remnants of my former life lodged in my flesh that rise up and lead me astray. I'm responsible for my flesh and its deeds, But fundamentally, it is not me. Thursday, we were at the Masters. I was able to take my two grandsons. and We were sitting by the 15th pond, watching them hit the balls in the pond, having fun. And we watched Mackenzie Hughes, a pro golfer, no less, a professional golfer, a man who makes his living playing golf. He hit a shot. On the 15th, into the 15th green, that comforted the heart of every hacker there has ever been who played golf. He bladed one. I mean, bladed it. He hit a line drive 90 degrees offline with a sand wedge that almost took a caddy's head off. And after he hit it, watch this. Look at what he does. He do. What does he do? Look at it. He looks at his club. As if the problem is his club. It's as if he's saying, that wasn't me. It was the club's fault. And that is exactly what Paul says. I haven't sinned. It's the sin that's within me. Paul's saying, in my heart, I'm a pro. But at times, I can still hack it with the best of them. And then he says in verse 18, For I know that in me, that is in my flesh, nothing good dwells. In the inner man, Paul is new in Christ. It's no longer I who sin. But the outer man is the problem. For in my flesh, he says, nothing good dwells. See, here's every Christian's miracle and dilemma. The old man is dead. I no longer have this sin nature. Yet sin still lingers in my members, my mind, and my emotions in my habits, 
and it can trip me up. So here's the Christian's plight in a nutshell. Paul is a redeemed spirit packaged in a corrupt flesh, and so are you. In the last half of verse 18, Paul restates his dilemma. For to will is present with me, but how to perform what is good I do not find. For the good that I will to do, I do not do, but the evil I will not to do, that I practice. See, in the inner man, Paul wants to be good, but the flesh betrays him. He has total confidence in what God has done in his spirit, but he has zero confidence in his flesh. And yet, think about it, our attitude is often just the opposite. See, we fail to recognize the miraculous work that God has done inside us. And instead, we think that godliness can be produced by our own efforts, by the flesh. And so we try to please God through our own strength. See, here's our downfall. We don't lean totally on the Spirit because we refuse to be weaned off the flesh. Victory lies within us. What was done on the cross is now done in our hearts. But we have to live by faith, not flesh. Notice verse 20. Again, he says, Now, if I do what I will not to do, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. And again, to me, that's just such an incredible statement. Paul disavows that it's truly him, the real Paul doing it when he sins. It's his flesh. Think of the Philly fanatic the mascot for the Philadelphia baseball team. On the outside, he's a green, furry monster who does crazy things. He taunts opponents and he incites the crowd. But when you see him, remember that that fuzzy exterior is really just a costume. There is a real man on the inside, making a six-figure salary, by the way. And the person on the inside is the real person. And you see, the same is true with me. At times, I get green with envy. I can have a monster-like temper. I can do crazy things, but it's not me. The real Sandy is underneath the exterior. The spiritual part of me is sinless and holy in the eyes of God. See, the guy inside the fanatic is not the monster, yet he's still responsible for the monster-like behavior. And this is Paul's frustration How does he tame the monster? He sums it up. I find in a law that evil is present with me, the one who wills to do good. For I delight in the law of God according to the inward man. But I see another law in my members, warring against the law of my mind and bringing me into captivity to the law of sin, which is in my members. Paul loves God but he's lugging around members that don't want to cooperate. Here's a rhyme for you. Within my earthly temple, there is a fight. Part of me is love and part is spite. There's a part that's brokenhearted for my sin. There's a part of me that's stubborn, just sits and grins. Deep inside, I love my neighbor as myself. At other times, I prefer to sit alone upon the shelf. But hear the conclusion. From such care I should be free if I could once for all determine which of these is me. And here is the key to our victory. 
Do we see ourselves in Christ? How do we see ourselves? As a new person in Christ? Do we know what Christ has done? Do we reckon it so? Do we present our members to act accordingly? Or are we trying to earn our way to God by obeying the law? See, that was Paul when he wrote chapter 7. He followed Christ, yet he lived as if he were under the law. And that's why he concludes in verse 24. A wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? And here Paul draws on some vivid imagery. In fact, I had some photos that I decided not to use. I didn't think we could stomach it. You see, Rome had an extremely harsh sentence for ruthless murderers. The corpse of the person who'd been murdered was strapped to the man who murdered him. The perpetrator was forced to carry around the rotting flesh of his victim. Talk about a punishment. Wherever he went, the corpse went with him. But this is how Paul sees himself. A wretched man that I am, he says. He is attached. He's a new creation in Christ, but he's attached to rotting flesh, his own body of sin. And until he dies, he carries the flesh around with him. What an awful dilemma. And yet there is hope. For in verse 25, Paul answers the question he just asked, who will deliver me? He tells us, I thank God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then with the mind I myself serve the law of God, but with the flesh, the law of sin. I thank God through Jesus Christ our Lord. There is victory and it's found in Christ. The answer to our dilemma is not keeping laws, but it's walking in God's spirit. And chapter 8 teaches us how. Now, have you noticed that the meaning of words often change over time? Have you noticed this? 50 years ago, hardware was nails and nuts and washers. Hard drive involved maneuvering your car up a steep mountain. Boot you wore on your foot. Virus made you sick. Mouse carried the virus. And dump was where the mouse lived, hopefully. Menu helped you order your food. Bite was what you did with your food. And spam was the type of food you hoped was not on the menu. Before computers, desktop was the top of a desk. Laptop was the top of your lap. And load was when a heavy person sat on your laptop. (laughs) Of course, today we recognize these terms as computer jargon. But this is how I want you to think now as we move into Romans chapter 8. For in a sense, we are all like computers in that we consist of hardware and software. Think of your spirit, the inner person, as hardware. And hardware is controlled by software by mindsets and belief systems and presuppositions and perspectives. Now imagine two types of software, two operating systems, if you like, loaded onto your hard drive. And here Paul gives them names. He calls them the law of the spirit of life and the law of sin and death. Notice a little bias there. Uh, Forgive me. Now, each day when you wake up, what do you do? You have a choice to make. 
Which operating system are you going to boot up? Which approach to life is going to govern your thoughts and actions that day? Will you orientate your life around God's spirit, around faith, or will you gravitate toward the things of the flesh? Now, with that backdrop, let's jump into one of the most hopeful chapters in all of the Bible, Romans chapter 8. It begins with a bang. There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus, who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Paul says that if I keep God's son, the issue in my life, that even when I shank a shot, there's no condemnation. I'm condemned only if I go back under the law, not if I live under grace. For the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has made me free from the law of sin and death. He's got two laws here working In tandem, you know, when an airplane takes off, two different principles come into play. The law of gravity puts a drag on that airplane and pulls it down. But the law of thrust and lift supersede gravity and propel it airborne. And likewise, the upward life of the Holy Spirit overrides the downward pull of sin. We can soar in the Spirit. So here's the question. What principle is at work in you? What's running on your hard drive? Is it law or is it faith? For what the law could not do in that it was weak through the flesh, God did by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh on account of sin. He condemned sin in the flesh that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. God's law had no flaw. The problem isn't the law. It's my flesh. My flesh is terribly weak and it's prone to sin. Reminds me of the jingle. To run and work the law commands, yet gives me neither feet nor hands. But better news the gospel brings. It bids me fly and gives me wings. The law sets the bar, but the Holy Spirit gives me spring enough to jump over the bar. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit, the things of the Spirit. For to be carnally minded is death, but to be spiritually minded is life and peace. Again, how do we walk in the Spirit? Well, let's go back to the computer illustration. When you come to Jesus, God installs a new hard drive inside of you. He puts His nature in your heart. But the hardware's efficiency depends on the software. If old software is running on new equipment, it won't perform very well. It'll malfunction, a.k.a. chapter 7. That's why you've got to reboot. Stop using the operating system entitled the things of the flesh and log on to the system entitled the things of the spirit. Now, I don't know a lot about computers, As a matter of fact, when I have a problem with mine, I call Vernon. But Vernon will come in and he'll look at it and he'll always ask me the same question. Have you rebooted? Because the one truth I've learned over the years, the answer to almost every problem is to reboot. And this also applies spiritually. For when I struggle, when I, like Paul, do what I hate and not do what I want, That's a sign that I need to reboot. 
I need to check my mindset. Am I laboring on my own as if it's up to me? Or am I resting in the work that God has done in my spirit? Do I see myself in Christ? Or am I logged on to some old identity? When I reboot, I shift from flesh to faith. From carnally minded to spiritually minded. See, are you operating spiritually or are you in the flesh? Carnal mind is death, Paul says. While spiritual mind produces life and peace. Verse 7, because the carnal mind is enmity against God, for it is not subject to the law of God, nor indeed can be, so then those who are in the flesh cannot please God. I mean, it's like Mac and PC. It's like Georgia Tech and Georgia. It's like Coke and Pepsi. The flesh and the spirit are bitter rivals. See, the goal of your flesh is to make itself look good or make itself feel good. Whereas the goal of the Holy Spirit is to please God and glorify Him. So try running both of those operating systems at the same time, and you'll end up in chapter 7, stuck in frustration. That's why Paul says in verse 9, But you are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you. Now, if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he is not his. Guys, All true believers possess God's Spirit. That means you have the power to live victoriously. But you need to learn to operate from a spiritual mindset, from a perspective of faith. Paul says, and if Christ is in you, the body is dead because of sin, but the Spirit is life because of righteousness. If we rely on our own resources, we're in trouble, for our body is dead due to sin. That's why we have to move and live in the power of the Spirit. Paul is telling us we need to shelve our do-it-yourself attitude, and we need to learn to live by faith. Verse 11, But if the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through His Spirit who dwells in you. The same Holy Spirit who raised Jesus from the dead lives in us. We have incredible power, resurrection power, and it's available to every Christian. You know, it's been said, we depend on Jesus for our eternal life, but we depend on the Spirit for our internal life. And the next few verses teach us about the Holy Spirit, how to live by the Spirit, how to be led by the Spirit, and how to be loved by the Spirit. Jeanette She lives in New York City. And because of the crime in her neighborhood, she took up judo, later karate. She learned all the kicks and the punches and the pressure holds. She eventually became a black belt, a martial arts expert. Finally, the day came when all of her training was put to the test. She was attacked on the streets by a purse snatcher. And Jeanette defended herself admirably but not with any of the martial arts. She beat the guy up with an umbrella. (laughs) And here's the point of the story. What you know theoretically may not be what you draw on in reality. For this happens in our struggle with sin. When temptation comes, do we really trust in God's spirit or do we try to cope with it in our own strength? 
See, we need to be spiritually minded and we need to rely on who we are and what we have in Christ. He goes on, he says, therefore, brethren, we are debtors, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. It hasn't done anything for us. For if you live according to the flesh, you'll die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. You need to shake off this do-it-yourself attitude and make room in your perspective for God's Spirit to work. And then verse 14, For as many as are led by the Spirit of God, these are sons of God. The Greek word here translated led, it means to be driven. To be led doesn't mean to be dragged around. The law led us from the outside in. It dragged us around. No, it's the Spirit who leads us from the inside out. He drives us. He gives us motivation. You know, in basketball, one great player, he gets hot and he can carry the whole team for weeks. And this is the impact the Holy Spirit wants to make in your life. He wants to become your difference maker. Then verse 15. For you did not receive the spirit of bondage again to fear, but you received the spirit of adoption by which we cry out, Abba, Father. You know, the law created fear, bondage. But the Spirit of God is the Spirit of adoption. You know, we are not only born of God's Spirit, but we're also adopted into God's family. Do you realize we become part of God's family in two ways? We're born into it and we're adopted. And if you're adopted, you have one great advantage. If you're an adopted child, you always know that you're wanted. And you see, this is what God is saying to us by giving us the spirit of adoption, that he loves us, that he really wants us to be his child. And we can cry out, Abba or Daddy. The term implies a closeness. The Holy Spirit puts us on intimate terms with our Father. That's what the law could never do. And then Paul says in verse 16, the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. Here's another function of the Holy Spirit. And I say this reverently, but you know, to me, the Holy Spirit is like a dial tone. You know, whenever I pick up the phone, I always listen for the dial tone. I know I got a connection when I get that dial tone. And the Holy Spirit confirms our connection to God. He provides in us the inner witness of God's presence. And I could tell my kids over and over again how much I love them, but if I never hugged them, My words would be pretty hollow, wouldn't they? Think of the Holy Spirit as the hug of God. We feel God's love through the presence of the Holy Spirit in our hearts. He says, and if children, if we're children of God, then we're heirs, heirs of God, and joint heirs with Christ. And that blows me away. Joint heirs with Christ? You know, it would be more than enough as an adopted child if God just let me eat at his table and live under his roof. I'd understand it if he gave all of his treasure to his natural son. But God has included me in his will and you in his will. And he hasn't just given us a 5% cut or a 10% cut, but we are joint heirs with Christ. Can you believe that? Who would have thunk it? God would split his inheritance between us and Jesus? Can you imagine? What a shocker. And God has only one ask of us in return. 
to share in His glory, He wants us to share in His sufferings. We're joint heirs with Christ if indeed we suffer with Him that we may also be glorified together. To receive a crown, we need to be willing to bear a cross. And His crosses are nothing compared to His glory, for that's what He teaches us in the next few verses. He says, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. Always remember, hardships on earth pale in comparison to the glories of Christ. Think of a marathon, if you will, all 26 miles of it. The runners, they tow the starting line. When all of a sudden, one of them jumps the gun. He goes off too early. It's a false start. But in light of 26 miles, it's no big deal, is it? I mean, when the race is over, that false start won't even be recalled. And that's what the sufferings of this life are like compared to the glories of heaven. The things you're going through right now are a mere false start compared to the glories that you're going to enjoy with Jesus one day. Heaven is so heavy, it makes all earthly hardships seem like a feather. You know, often we think of the glories that our eyes will see when we reach heaven. But hey, next to the Savior himself, did you know that the most glorious sight in heaven will be us? Did you know that will be one of the highlights of heaven? Christians will share in God's glory. That's what we find in verse 19. We're told for the earnest expectation of the creation eagerly waits for the revealing of the sons of God. The Phillips translation renders verse 19. The whole creation is on tiptoe to see the wonderful sight of the sons of God coming into their own. How amazing is that? And verse 20 is such an important verse. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope. Here's the explanation for why we live in such a horrible world, why injustice takes place and natural disasters occur. See, in the beginning, all of creation was in harmony with its creator. But sin, man's sin, threw a wrench in the gears. God's perfectly ordered universe became subject to randomness because of our sin. And as a result, nature has now gone berserk. Today, every time a tree creaks or a dog howls at the moon, it's a sign to me that all is not right. Because of sin, the gentle rain that waters your lawn is also the source of the floods that wipe out an entire city. The wind that lifts a child's kite can knock over your house in a tornado. Today, nature is a mix of beauty and brutality, majesty and monstrosity. Paul continues, because the creation itself also will be delivered from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of the children of God. Understand this. Jesus, he did die on the cross for you, but he didn't just die on the cross to save you. He also died to redeem all the universe. Jesus died on the cross to restore everything that sin has touched. From you to your, to nature, to 
the nations, and on and on. Jesus is one day going to redeem everything that sin has touched. And then he says in verse 22, For we know that the whole creation groans and labors with birth pangs together until now. Julie Andrews sang, The hills are alive with the sound of music. But today those hills sing in a minor key. All creation is in bondage of corruption. In other words, we live in a fallen world that longs to be free. Today's creation song is a dirge. It groans, waiting on its redemption, on the day when God will make everything brand new. He says, not only that, but we also have the first fruits of the Spirit. Even we ourselves groan within ourselves, eagerly waiting for the adoption, the redemption of our body. Nature's not all that groans. I groan too. So do you, I imagine. We feel the aches and the pains of our fallen state, don't we? And the older I get, the more I groan. And I groan not just to be free. Suicide would do that. Oh, no. My hope is to be clothed in the glory of Jesus. We groan for the redemption of our body, Paul says, for we were saved in this hope. But hope that is seen is not hope. You got to have faith. For why does one still hope for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we eagerly wait for it with perseverance. You see, God has a purpose for our groaning. For groaning causes growing. You heard the expression labor pains? Growing pains? You ever heard that expression, growing pains? You never heard of growing joys. It's not joys that cause you to grow. It's pain that causes you to grow. It's when we grapple with pain and suffering and yet to be realized hope. That's what creates endurance. That's what shapes us into what God wants us to be. You see, the first half of Romans 8 teaches us how God by His Spirit adopts us. Now the last half of chapter 8 describes how He adapts us. How trials build character in our lives. You know, there are actually three groanings here in Romans chapter 8. We've discussed two. There's the groaning around us. And there's the groaning within us. And there's a third type of groaning. It's the Spirit's groaning on behalf of us. Which Paul mentions in verse 26. Likewise, the Spirit also helps in our weaknesses. For we do not know what we should pray for as we ought, but the Spirit Himself makes intercession for us with groanings which cannot be uttered. In other words, when our minds become befuddled we, and we don't know how to pray, or when our hearts get so, over, so heavy over being overwhelmed, the Spirit will groan for us. Here's how this works in my life, in my deepest trials I just groan. I'll sigh. I'll just vocalize my raw emotion. And as I do, I trust the Holy Spirit to translate my feelings into God's will. You see, the Holy Spirit is the perfect prayer partner. He says, now he who searches the heart knows what the mind of the Spirit is because he makes intercession for the saints according to the will of God. The Holy Spirit can take our groaning and turn it into effective prayer. 
And then verse 28 is a familiar verse. And we know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are the called according to his purpose. In the lives of God's children, God takes all our circumstances, what's pleasant and what's painful, and he works them together for our good and for his glory. And notice each word here in verse 28 is strategic. God works not a few things, not some things, not even most things, but all things together for good. And he works all things together. For on their own, some events in life are worthless. Yet God takes random and seemingly unredeemable things, and he puts them together with other things, and he turns them into good. You know, like the ingredients in a cake. On their own, you couldn't stomach them. Who likes to eat raw flour or eggs or butter? They're disgusting by themselves. But boy, when the baker puts all of those components together under the fire, they turn out to be a delicious mix, don't they? And the same is true with how God works in our lives. Of all those things you're suffering with right now, they're about to turn into a delicious mix. You just wait on God and just trust in his fire. And notice God's overarching purpose in all that he does with us. We're told, for whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Before we existed, we were chosen to be like Jesus, to be conformed into the image of Jesus. This is why God is not afraid to use whatever means necessary, even your suffering to accomplish his purposes, to conform you into the image of his son. He knows how important it is. Verse 30, moreover, whom he predestined, these he also called. Whom he called, these he also justified. And whom he justified, these he also glorified. Your God-ordained destiny is to be glorified in Christ. And this blows Paul away. He writes in verse 31, What then shall we say to these things? He becomes speechless. And it takes a lot to get the Apostle Paul to become speechless. And he closes the chapter with a flurry of questions that are designed not necessarily to be answered as much as to stir up our appreciation for God's amazing grace. He begins, If God is for us, who can be against us? Did you know that, that God is for you? He is. Author Max Licato says that if there's a tree in heaven, God has carved your name in its bark. Your photo is on his refrigerator magnet. Isaiah 49 verse 16 even tells us, I have written your name on my hand. Imagine that. God has a tattoo and it's a sandy tat. Can you imagine that? Don't ever think God holds a grudge against you. Don't ever think he's angry at you. Don't ever think that God has washed his hands of you. He hasn't. God is for you, friend. And his favor trumps all opposition. But what proof do we have that God is for us? Notice verse 32. For he did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all. How shall he not with him also freely give us all things? Listen, if God gave up his own precious son 
his son Jesus as a sacrifice to save you? Do you think he's now going to get stingy with the rent? Or he's not going to find you a good job or a Christian husband? Well, I doubt his generosity now. He says, who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Now, I have some enemies who'd like to throw some rocks at me, but they're not my judge. God is my judge, and God isn't condemning or denouncing. He's just forgiving. That's what he's about. He is the God who justifies. Verse 34, who is he who condemns? Not Christ, for if it is Christ who died... And furthermore is also risen, who is even at the right hand of God, who also makes intercession for us. Have you seen what Jesus is doing? I mean, he traveled a long road, man, from a manger to a cross to heaven's throne. He's interceding for you now to ensure your salvation. Why would he want to condemn you after doing all that? Verse 35. So who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? In the fourth century, the great church leader, John Chrysostom, he offended the Roman emperor and he was called to the palace and he was told to stop preaching God's word or he would be banished. Chrysostom replied, Sire, you cannot banish me, for the world is my father's house. The emperor snapped back, Then I will slay you. He said again, No, you cannot, for my life is hid with Christ in God. Then your treasures will be confiscated. Sire, my treasures are in heaven, where none can break through and steal. The emperor got angry. He said, Then I will drive you from man, and you will have no friends left. Chrysostom said, no, you can't do that either, for I have a friend in heaven who has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. John Chrysostom was eventually banished, and he died en route to his location, but history never forgot the lesson that he taught that day. You can take nothing from a child of God that is truly important. Nothing. Nothing separates us from the love of God. And then in verse 36, Paul quotes Psalm 44, verse 22. As it is written, for your sake, we are killed all day long. We are accounted as sheep for the slaughter. And this was certainly Paul's life. He suffered much for Jesus' sake. Yet in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Named the trial and God saw to it that Paul overcame with joy and victory. And you too can be more than a conqueror. In Christ Jesus. For I am persuaded that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, that includes the devil. He was an angel, but he's, he has nothing against you. He can't separate you from God's love, nor things present, nor things to come. Hey, don't worry about the future. There's nothing in your future that can separate you from God's love, nor height, nor depth. In a literal translation of height nor depth would be neither zenith nor horizon. You see, the zenith is the point in the sky directly overhead, whereas the horizon is where the circle of the earth meets the sky. 
And when astrologers cast their horoscopes, they do so by studying the position of the stars and the planets in relationship to the earth's zenith and horizon. This is provocative language. For what Paul is doing here is he's combating the occult and astrology. Even today, people think that their destiny is tied to the constellations, but not so. Paul says that not even the stars can separate us from the love of God. Speaking of superstition, I love what Donald Gray Barnhouse's comment that he makes here on verse 39. He says, a true Christian can sit down at a table with 13 people present, spill salt, break a mirror, put an umbrella up inside a room, walk under a ladder, have a black cat walk across his path, and all this can happen to him on Friday the 13th. Yet none of it, nor all of it together, can separate him from God's love. Amen? Trust the Lord, not luck. Neither chance or or superstition or fate has any influence over the life that's lived in Christ. Well, chapter 8 concludes with wonderful assurance, nor any other created thing, how's that for an all-encompassing statement, shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. God's people said, Amen. Father, we thank you so much for your word.